Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery podcast. It is a place where we explore the world of horror in film, literature, and popular culture. Hello, everyone. Greetings once again. My name is Bruce Markison, and I'm joined as always by our producer and co-host, Tracy Asteria, for today's program. Tracy, welcome to the show. How have you been? I've been great, Bruce. How about you? Very good. I went to a horror convention a couple of weekends ago at uh, Vernon Downs, not too far from here, where I live in Cooperstown. I had a chance to meet uh, Felissa Rose, uh, who has done a number of horror movies over the years. Uh, there um, was a nice opportunity for us to have a little bit of a reunion. I used to see Felissa at the Turning Stone Convention, which um, was called Scaricon. It took place for several years, organized by a Cooperstown gentleman named Jim Johnson. And I must have interviewed Felissa three or four times at that convention, oh, wow. uh, presented her with a copy of my book. She immediately recognized me. That's just the type of person that she is. Aww. So that was a lot of fun. I also got to hear a Lorenzo Lamas talk, a Lorenzo... Uh, not so much a horror star, but an action star. Uh, of course, the son of a, a very famous actor, Fernando Lamas. Uh, that was kind of fun. There was lots of great memorabilia. I uh, had a chance to purchase some things uh, as well, uh, including a uh, large action Frankenstein doll, if you will. So that was pretty cool. Are you the type of person like me that goes to horror conventions? I have never been to a horror convention. There's not really anything like that where I am, but it's definitely on the agenda kind of going forward because I, I've been to my very first sci-fi convention and that was just last year. So I'm kind of on the hunt for something brand new. I do have a paranormal convention that I'm perhaps looking forward to in October. So we'll, we'll see about that, but a horror convention is top on my list. Well, we'll have to bring you south of the border to do some horror conventions uh, in this area. There's a great one in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area called Monster Bash. I've been to that. That's a lot of fun as well. Uh, I think you'd really enjoy those events. Oh, wow. uh, our special guest today, Tracy, uh, is a gentleman who is an expert on the career of horror director Dan Curtis. He is also an expert on uh, Dark Shadows, uh, great television show later became uh, a, a film uh, in different formats uh, a couple of films that came out in the early 70s a more recent one with johnny depp of which i'm not a particular fan of uh, but with that i'm going to let you introduce him and kind of kick off our show this week all right well hi jeff it's really great to meet you today and I'm really excited to learn a lot about Dark Shadows from you. But before we get started, would you mind just kind of telling the listening audience a little bit about yourself so we can get to know you as a person a little bit better? And just so everybody knows, this is Dr. Jeff Thompson, author, former college professor who joins us today. Thank you very much, Tracy and Bruce. I'm thrilled to be here talking with you and your listeners. I'm Jeff Thompson. I live here in Nashville, Tennessee. I am a lifelong Dark Shadows fan. Uh, the show began on ABC when I was seven years old, but I did not discover it until a year later when I was eight and the vampire Barnabas Collins had already 
come onto the scene. Uh, that character was not in the first 10 months or so of Dark Shadows, but the addition of the vampire character really made the show take off and become one of the highest rated programs in daytime television in the late 60s and early 70s. So I um, watched it uh, for the rest of its run and I was reading the Dark Shadows comic books and the uh, Dark Shadows gothic novels by Dan Ross and collecting the uh, games, puzzles, records, trading cards, everything about Dark Shadows. And then as a teenager, uh, I wrote for quite a few Dark Shadows fanzines, including Kathy Resch's fanzine, The World of Dark Shadows, as well as some comic book fanzines at the same time, because another one of my interests was comic books. Um, and then as the years went by, I began writing articles for magazines, uh, uh, Movie Club, uh, Scarlet Street, Midnight Marquee, magazines like that about science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And sometimes I wrote about Dark Shadows or the many other uh, horror or mystery productions of Dan Curtis, the producer director who created Dark Shadows. Uh, and then Finally, I began writing chapters for multi-author books and then my own books. I've written three books about producer-director Dan Curtis. Um, I wrote the first one uh, originally as my doctoral dissertation when I was getting my PhD doctor's degree. At first, I thought I would write about film noir, uh, right. uh, but so many books have been written about that genre. And at that very time that I was thinking about what to write, Dan Curtis died. And uh, uh, an internet website called Scoop, a weekly e-newsletter, Scoop asked me to write Dan Curtis's obituary for Scoop. And I essentially wrote it off the top of my head because I had studied Dan Curtis's productions uh, over the years and read about him and them and seen almost all of his productions. Now I have seen all four dozen. And so I got the idea, well, um, I'm familiar with Dan Curtis already and many people might not be. I'm sure many people have seen uh, his productions, Dark Shadows, The Night Stalker, Trilogy of Terror, Burnt Offerings, The Winds of War, War and Remembrance, but they don't know who Dan Curtis is. They don't know that name. So I, I uh, resolved, well, I'll write my dissertation about Dan Curtis and his horror productions in particular uh, so that he can uh, become uh, recognized, more recognized and more well-known. And um, so after I wrote uh, the dissertation, I uh, reshaped it and remolded it slightly and it was published uh, by McFarland as the television horrors of Dan Curtis. And as I said, that book uh, focuses on Curtis's horror productions, of which there are many, but he, he did, in, among his four dozen productions, he did many other genres. He did mysteries, crime dramas, love stories, uh, war movies, uh, one Western, um, many. So I, I went ahead and wrote two more books uh, examining those other productions. Um, next, I wrote House of Dan Curtis, mm -hmm. meaning the production House of Dan Curtis, but 
Dark Shadows fans know that that uh, is a play on the name of the first Dark Shadows movie, House of Dark Shadows. And uh, one of my Dark Shadows fan friends said to me, well, now that you've written House of Dan Curtis, you're going to have to write Night of Dan Curtis because the second movie was called Night of Dark Shadows. So I wrote Nights, plural, of Dan Curtis, all about the many nights when we watched his epic World War II miniseries, The Winds of War and War and Remembrance, as well as some of his other epic productions like his three-hour Western movie and his great adaptation of Dracula, scripted by his frequent collaborator, Richard Matheson, and his UFO miniseries, Intruders, They Are Among Us. So uh, writing about Dan Curtis and then going to conventions and talking about Curtis and, going, and, and uh, uh, presenting some chapters from my books at academic conferences like PCAS and TPA have been keeping me busy. I retired from teaching at Tennessee State University after 35 years, uh, but I'm still as busy as ever because I'm, I've been speaking on some podcasts and speaking on some Edgar Allan Poe Zoom meetings and things like that. So I'm thrilled to be here with you today. Oh my gosh. Well, we're definitely thrilled to have you. That's, that's amazing. You know, what really strikes me, Jeff, is how you've been able to do all this, write these books, and I've read all three, and they're all terrific. I mean, these are, these are award-winning type books. Uh, I know that at least one of them was nominated for a Rondo, probably should yes. have won, to be quite yes, honest. Two, but two of them were nominated for Rondo Awards. That's yeah. terrific. Yeah, they, they are outstanding books. And I, I know that the research, the time that went into this was on a high scale. And you were able to do that while being a full-time professor at Tennessee, Tennessee State University. How are you able to do that? Oh, I guess time management. That's what I always <laughs> talk to my students about, you know, finding time to do everything, you know, studying and having fun and reading and writing and doing everything that you need to do. Uh, but yes, it did keep me very busy, um, but I en enjoyed it. I, I wrote uh, the, the bulk of those three books on my summer vacations uh, when I was teaching either one or no classes, usually one. And then in the months of December, after the fall semester ended and I had three or four weeks away from school before mm -hmm. the next semester began. So I, I just found the time to, to work hard on all of it. Let's lay the groundwork of your interest. From 1966 to 1971, Dark Shadows, this daily Gothic soap opera about ghosts and vampires, werewolves, and other monsters aired on ABC television. It was in the afternoon originally broadcast in black and white, though it did eventually move to color. Your connection to Dark Shadows began a little bit after its debut. The program starts in 66. You started watching in 1967, and it's kind of an interesting story how you came to watch uh, that first episode. Yes, it was September of 1967, and I was homesick from school, and so I was just turning the channels and back then Nashville 
had, I guess, four, ABC, CBS, NBC, and NET, which became PBS. And so I happened to turn to ABC, and there was Dark Shadows. And the very first scene of that episode, the very first scene I saw of Dark Shadows, captured my interest instantly mm-hmm. um, uh, because it involved two little children about my age. And uh, one of the children was having a nightmare in which he and the little girl were in the basement of a a scary old house and there was a coffin there and the coffin lid suddenly creaked open and out stepped the vampire Barnabas Collins. So I was hooked immediately and started watching Dark Shadows and my mother watched with me. And when the times of the show changed and I was not home from school yet she would tell me about the episode this was before long before vcrs and before it occurred to us to tape record the sound on cassette tapes so uh uh my mother who uh watched many of the other soap operas and i became fans of the show and um when i become a fan of something i want to know read see have collect everything about it so that led to my reading the paperback novels and the comic books and collecting the cards and and all of the other Dark Shadows collectibles, which was unusual uh, for a daytime TV show at that time. No other soap opera had had inspired so many collectibles, if any. Um, And of course, those memorabilia items are still sought after today. But but yes, because I happened to be at home sick from school one day and flipping through the channels, I discovered Dark Shadows and discovered a lifelong interest. And uh, watching the show developed many of my other interests, uh, such as uh, writing, acting, um, history, time travel, uh, costumes, you know, um, a fascination with ruins. So um, uh, Dark Shadows really sparked my imagination. So Jeff, when you were flipping through the channel, you stumble upon Dark Shadows, you had no idea a vampire was gonna show up, right? No, I had not heard anything about the show, um, but I guess because, you know, I had read comic books and books and, you know, uh, was fairly literate by age eight, I instinctively knew what was happening he came out of a coffin so he's a vampire so uh, that that piqued my interest and and as with any of the soap operas i have watched over the decades i had to tune in tomorrow barnabas collins of course became the heartbeat to the show as played so wonderfully by the actor jonathan frid but when the show began in 1966 there was not a vampire there was no barnabas collins The show really got off to kind of a staggering start. There were talk or there was talk that the show might be canceled. And then Dan Curtis, the creator, producer of the show, decides uh, sometime in 67 to add Barnabas Collins to the mix. If he had not done that, do you think the show would have been canceled? Yes, I think so, because ABC told Dan Curtis, look, we're going to cancel you on such and such a date. So you have just so many more weeks of the show. And um, the show had was low rated, although it was something 
new and different on daytime. It was not like uh, As the World Turns and the other soap operas in that it was patterned after the gothic romance novels that were popular in the 60s and 70s and which Dan Ross was writing under 21 different pseudonyms before he wrote the Dark Shadows mm. gothic novels. Um, so it, it had an air of mystery and intrigue. And in those first 10 months, there were, were hints of, uh, and talk of ghosts and supernatural events. Uh, but mostly it was just eerie atmosphere. But then, it, but then uh, ghosts did start to appear on the show. And that was something very unusual. And, uh, and then a phoenix fire creature uh, came back uh, from the dead, and the ratings went up a little bit, but ABC still was planning to cancel the show. So uh, Dan Curtis at the time had three uh, young daughters who were about the, the ages of the, little, the other little kids and me, all of us who were watching the show at the time. And so his three daughters told him, make it scarier. And so Dan Curtis thought to himself, well, what, what scares me the most? A vampire. Okay, I'll add a vampire. Dan Curtis was a, a, a lifelong fan of the universal monster movies like Dracula and Frankenstein. And one of his favorite movies was The Innocence, Jack mm. Clayton's uh, version of The Turn of the Screw. And uh, uh, Dan Curtis went on to use a Turn of the Screw type plot on Dark Shadows twice and then uh, uh, directed his own version of The Turn of the Screw in uh, the early 1970s. So Curtis and the writers uh, added a vampire. It was, of course, the writers who were writing the show, but Curtis was, was almost like another writer in that he always had a lot of input, many suggestions, and uh, sort of uh, was the captain of the writing ship, so to speak while the other writers like Joe Caldwell and Malcolm Marmerstein and Ron Sprote did the actual writing and creating of the vampire Barnabas Collins. And uh, once the vampire character came on, the ratings went up and up and up and up. Uh, and until in, in mid-1969, Dark Shadows was attracting 20 million viewers. And that, that's unheard of in today's uh, TV uh, landscape, you know, if, if, if uh, a show like NCIS or The Big Bang Theory is lucky to get maybe ten or eleven million viewers, or mm -hmm. but um, Dark Shadows, you know, was was getting those ratings because there were, of course, fewer alternatives. But because Dark Shadows was so thrilling and and new and exciting, um, but when when Barnabas Collins came onto the show. Uh, Curtis and the writers figured, well, he, he'll he just be a, you know, a, a villain who will be on the show maybe for 13 weeks, and then someone will drive a stake through his heart. And then I don't know what they were planning next. I guess they were just maybe planning to go on to another monster of the week, so to speak, mm -hmm. or another ghost story, or maybe a werewolf. But um, when Jonathan Frid, the Canadian Shakespearean actor, came on and began playing the part, he played it in such a way that um, uh, the fans uh, loved him. He, he was doing horrible, abusive things to the other characters on the show. 
uh, yet he, he there was a quality about him that made that drew people to him because he was playing the part as what became known as the reluctant vampire. Um, and Jonathan Frid himself said, I, uh, I, I wasn't playing a vampire per se. I didn't play the bite only. I was playing an alcoholic, someone with a compulsion or an addiction. He, hmm. he said, I, I, as a vampire, had to go out and, and, and bite people and drink blood, but I didn't want to do it. And that was one of Jonathan Frid's um, um, descriptions of what he was doing. And, and something else he said that was very interesting one time was he said that uh, to him, the, the, the scariest monster is a liar, someone who lies and then has to keep up the lie. And once he tells a lie, then he has to tell another lie and another and another. And it's, it snowballs and he becomes frantic and desperate because he has to keep up this lie. So, so those were the underpinnings of the Barnabas Collins character, much more than just uh, a marauder, which was Dan Curtis's word that uh, Curtis envisioned the villainous character as. So, um, so after those original weeks of, of terrorizing the people of Collinsport, Maine, the Barnabas character changed into a more sympathetic character. Uh, his, his reluctant, guilt-ridden nature was played up even more. And, uh, and, and Curtis thought to himself, well, gee whiz, how do I perpetuate a vampire? How do I mm-hmm. keep it going? And so he and the writers came up with the idea of and something that had never been done on daytime television before. Well, let's go back in time. Let's take the characters back in time, 200 years almost, and show Barnabas when he was human and show what happened to him and how he, how and why he became a vampire. And, and that, uh, to many fans, not all, but to many fans made him a more sympathetic character after we saw that he was uh, cursed by the witch Angelique and became a vampire and then existed in, uh, in stasis in a chained coffin for um, decades and decades from 1796 until he was released into the then present time of 1967, a famous scene of Willie Loomis uh, uh, finding a secret room in the mausoleum and and uh, breaking the chains and and opening the coffin, thinking he would find jewels, but out comes a, a hand that grabs his throat, and that's how Barnabas Collins was released into the world of 1967, and immediately had to start lying, obviously, because he <laughs> he, he couldn't reveal who and what he was and where he came from, so. He, uh, he had to pass himself off to the people at the present-day Collinwood mansion, the manor house, uh, as uh, a distant cousin from England. So immediately he had to lie and keep up the lie. You mentioned earlier, Jeff, how iconic this program became. It was a pop culture sensation, really by 1969, when you said they were drawing 20 million viewers. When you look back at why that happened, do we have to give most of the credit, if not all the credit, to Jonathan Fred, who was such a great actor? 
Well, I think we would give a great deal of credit to Jonathan Frid, but the strength of Dark Shadows is that it was uh, an ensemble show. It was a repertory company. Most of these actors were, well, all of them had uh, stage training, and most of them had, had done Broadway or summer stock, and so they, they were very theatrical in their acting, which, which gave the, the show, um, uh, 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 you know, something special uh, mm-hmm. because uh, the, the actors were often playing the parts in a theatrical, almost broad way, but, but always believable. They, they played it straight, you know, uh, as, as the show became more and more outlandish with all kinds of zombies and, and time travel and, and a disembodied head and hand and everything. The actors played it straight. They, they, they didn't spoof it or, or have their tongues in their cheeks. They, they were playing a serious drama. Now, occasionally there was some unintentional humor or some campy elements that we looking back on it now um see but back then you know to the viewers especially uh kids and teenagers like me we took it totally seriously you know any unintentional humor or camp element went over our heads and we were enthralled in the story to the point where you know, we, we took it completely seriously. And when you watch Dark Shadows today, you can look at it uh, and sort of have fun with it, or you can still take it completely seriously as, as any soap opera. And, uh, and Dark Shadows had many, certainly had many, many dramatic, almost Shakespearean tragic moments. And, and you, can, you can become enthralled with it all over again on that level. Jeff, I do want to talk about a number of the actors. Uh, there were many fine performers on the show that were critical to the success. But again, want to talk a little bit about Jonathan Frid, who uh, there's a tendency to underrate him because after Dark Shadows and after the, the, the first of the two films, he didn't do a lot of movies after that. He was a stage actor. Uh, that was in many ways his first love. So he kind of fell out of public consciousness, but this guy was really a wonderful actor. He was uh, Shakespearean in many ways. Uh, he was classically trained. I mean, this guy was really good. Oh yes, he was. Uh, uh, he had had played Richard the Third. He had played Caliban. He had played many Shakespearean parts, and uh, uh, and continued his stage career after Dark Shadows. He, um, uh, he really, he, he never was interested in horror. He, he uh, appreciated Dark Shadows and, and uh, the career that it gave him, but he, he was not a horror fan himself, per se. And after Dark Shadows, he was being offered other horror parts and did a couple, a, an ABC movie of the week, The Devil's Daughter, and then Oliver Stone's first movie, Seizure, a horror mm. movie. Um, but after that, I, I think he, uh, he wanted to, con- to concentrate more on stage work and then in later years on his one-man shows of dramatic readings. Uh, he would read aloud um, stories and poems and some of his own writings and, uh, uh, and enthrall the audience all over again with just, you know, his, 
his voice, his body language, his presence. He didn't have any sets or props with him. He, he, he created uh, everything in our mind's eye as he, as he delivered uh, terrific uh, dramatic readings of the telltale heart and, uh, and other stories, not all of them horror. Uh, yeah. So uh, I, I think that was where his real interest lie. But but yes, he 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 was uh, what uh, gave Dark Shadows a new lease on life and kept it going for so long, along with, as you say, so many of the other great actors who were on the show, like Joan Bennett, uh, Louis Edmonds, Nancy Barrett, Grayson Hall, Thayer David, David Selby, Laura Parker, Catherine Lee Scott, um, all of them, you know, highly uh, trained serious actors they they might be doing something borderline silly on the show sometimes but but they they brought their great training and craft to it and so that made us the audience believe it when the show started was joan bennett the most well-known of all the actors yes um she was uh the others uh like louis edmonds uh uh, had 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 done some TV, some soap operas, and and Broadway, but Joan Bennett, you know, was a a, a famous Hollywood movie star, and uh, perhaps uh, because uh, Days of Our Lives, which had begun one year earlier, had had um, uh, uh, tapped McDonald Carey, another Hollywood actor, although not as quite as famous as Joan Bennett, to headline that show, um, Dark Shadows uh, chose uh, a Hollywood star to uh, anchor Dark Shadows. And, and in the early episodes, Joan Bennett is front and center, more so than she was at certain later parts of the show. Uh, so uh, yes, uh, Joan Bennett was by far the most famous. Uh, I think later Jonathan Frid and David Selby and some of the other women and men on the show became just as famous. And uh, to many of the kids and teenagers who, who were watching Dark Shadows, they may never have seen Scarlet Street or Father of the Bride or any of Joan Bennett's great movies. They knew her only as the star of Dark Shadows. Yeah. One of the people that well, she's very likable in person, but she also played a very likable character. That was Catherine Lee Scott. Uh, she was immensely important to the success of this show. Oh, yes. And uh, Catherine is, is still today sort of the goodwill ambassador of Dark Shadows because she writes about the show. She speaks about it. Uh, uh, you know, she makes personal appearances connected with uh, a showing of House of Dark Shadows or, or a showing of a Dan Curtis production or something like that. So, um, yes, Catherine is is uh, very well loved by all of the fans who have met her. And she uh, is very friendly and personable in person and has a lot of terrific stories and funny stories to to tell us at personal appearances or in her books, such as uh, My Scrapbook Memories of Dark Shadows and um, other Dark Shadows Memories and uh, other books that she has written. But, uh, but so many of the Dark Shadows uh, stars were regular uh, uh, attendees of the Dark Shadows Festival, a Dark Shadows fan convention that began in 1983 and continued on up into recent years. 
Um, the last large scale Dark Shadows Festival was 2016, which I guess was the 50th anniversary of Dark Shadows. Um, in more recent years, there have been smaller uh, events where um, uh, some of the Dark Shadow stars have appeared like at uh, the premiere showings of a, a Jonathan Frid documentary and a Dan Curtis documentary or a showing of House of Dark Shadows um, and uh, things like that. But uh, for many years in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, fans flocked to the Dark Shadows festivals held uh, usually uh, in New York or Newark, New Jersey and Los Angeles, although there have been festivals held in uh, Texas, uh, Nevada, and elsewhere. You went to a lot of these festivals? Yes, uh, I, I went to quite a few and uh, sometimes served as the MC or co-MC of the festival. Hmm. And then I uh, uh, sometimes wrote humorous skits based on the show uh, and the other fans and I acted them out. Hmm. Um, we called ourselves the Collinsport Players. Uh, yeah. the, uh, the acting troupe was originated at a, a different convention, I think a science fiction and Doctor Who convention by Dr. Laura Brodian Freeze, uh, who uh, then came to the first uh, or the second uh, Dark Shadows Festival in Newark, New Jersey. And uh, she and I were the co-hosts and we started doing skits together. And uh, over time, the skits became more and more elaborate and more scripted and with costumes and, and music and everything. And then in later years, some of the Dark Shadow stars appeared in the skits as well. Hmm. So, um, so yeah, that, that was always a fun time at the Dark Shadows festivals. Jeff, let's talk about some of these personalities. You've had a chance to interview them, meet them in, in social settings. Let's start with Catherine Lee Scott. Is she as nice as she seems to be? Oh, yes, very much so. Um, um, I have uh, seen her at, um, of course, at the Dark Shadows Festivals and at uh, 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 a birthday party and uh, on a Zoom meeting. And in 2010, uh, Catherine Lee Scott was a guest at a, uh, a uh, comics and horror convention that is held here in Nashville mm. every year. And um, uh, she and her husband, uh, Jeff, who since has passed away and she has written books about that experience, uh, came to Nashville and I was uh, uh, thrilled to serve as their driver. I picked them up at the airport and, and drove them to their hotel and then to the convention site and and had dinner with them so yes um in any setting you know at a festival dark shadows q a festival or a an autograph signing or uh, you know just riding in the car or whatever or talking catherine is a is a delightful uh person uh full of life experience and 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 eager to share her her experiences and her her outlooks on life and her positive attitude with everyone around her. In many ways, like her character of Maggie on the show, who was yes. probably the most innocent and most likable of all those characters. Right. Yes. Maggie was sort of an every woman on the show and, and people could relate to her because 
she wasn't a vampire or a, a werewolf or any of the supernatural or witch, any of the supernatural creatures populating the show. Uh, that sometimes caused her to be a victim of those supernatural creatures, but usually she held her own and uh, uh, stayed on the show until almost the end when uh, she uh, was planning to move uh, to Europe. And so her character was written out of the show in the last few months, but she was on the show for most of the series. Jeff, how about David Selby? Have you met him? Oh, yes. David Selby is extremely personable and friendly and patient with the fans. Um, you know, he's done so many things. Af after Dark Shadows, he became a, a big star all over again on Falcon Crest, and he did Flamingo Road, and he has been a guest star on every show, The Waltons Family. Even He even turns up today, you know, on shows like um, the Chicago Fire and PD shows mm -hmm. and things like that. And uh, like Catherine Lee Scott, uh, uh, David Selby has written books, some about his experiences on Dark Shadows, some uh, original novels, uh, some uh, books of poetry. But uh, he is, is a, a very kind, charming individual and uh, is, is still friends with uh, his Dark Shadows stars. It's it's nice to know that uh, that most of the Dark Shadows actors stayed friends and became friends all over again at the Dark Shadows Festival and still do things together. Like um, uh, uh, they uh, many of the actors got together to do a a version of a Christmas Carol on <laughs> Zoom, and and recently um, uh, Catherine Lee Scott, David Selby, Susan Sullivan of Another World and Falcon Crest, and Mitchell Ryan, who was on Dark Shadows as Burke Devlin and mm -hmm. has since passed away. The four of them uh, uh, put on a, a play over Zoom as if uh, they were four friends talking to each other on a Zoom meeting, but but it was a, a scripted play. And uh, the, the, the A Christmas Carol uh, presentation a couple of Christmases ago was very interesting because in 2001 at a, 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 a Dark Shadows night, an event at the Museum of Television and Radio in Los Angeles, uh, Dan Curtis and the Dark Shadows stars gathered. And Dan Curtis mentioned that while the show was on, uh, every December he wished that he could have stopped the, the story and just done a week of A Christmas Carol. And he wanted the Dark Shadow stars to play the different roles of A Christmas Carol. But he said, uh, I never did it because we were always going so strong. You know, we, we, we uh, had a, a great story going on and, and people were watching. And so I didn't want to break it up to do A Christmas Carol. So it was terrific that, uh, that just a couple of years ago, the Dark Shadows stars, uh, as, as well as uh, uh, with some help from a couple of fans, well, managed to make that dream come true and give us a Dark Shadows Christmas Carol. Wow. Nice. How about Lara Parker, who played Angelique? Lara Parker is, is a, a wonderful lady who uh, uh, comes from Tennessee. Uh, and um, uh, after Dark Shadows, you saw her on every TV show. You know, she popped up on 
uh, Switch and many of those other Glenn Larson shows and um, um, Remington Steel and, you know, uh, Kung Fu and everything. Uh, she was quite ubiquitous all over TV in the 70s and 80s. And, um, and then she too began writing books. Uh, she has written several novels of, based on Dark Shadows, based especially on her character of Angelique the Witch. And she became a teacher. She uh, has taught English at the high school and college levels and um, in, enjoys doing everything, acting, writing, teaching, spending time with her family and friends, uh, everything. Tracy, you wanted to ask a question? Um, this just kind of is a little bit different, but as you all know, I am a really huge horror fan, but you know, I've never seen an episode of Dark Shadows. So I was wondering what kind of advice or tips would you give to a new viewer? Would you suggest they start out with the original series, the novels, or some of the audio dramas? Oh, I, I would say start with the original 1966 to 1971 uh, series. Uh, mm. if, if you want just a, a, a very condensed and different version of the Barnabas story, you can see the 1970 film House of Dark Shadows, which recreates some of that 1967 storyline in which Willie Loomis unchains the coffin and, and releases Barnabas and he comes to Collinwood. But House of Dark Shadows is a, a much more violent retelling of the story with a completely different ending, the ending that perhaps Dan Curtis had intended and uh, mm -hmm. the Barnabas character in that movie is much more villainous, much more brutal, much more of the, quote, marauder, to use Curtis's word, that Dan Curtis wanted to bring on the show. But then when Fred began playing the part and people reacted uh, uh, so uh, uh, great deeply to him, that's when the, the story changed. But yes, um, by all means, uh, dip into the uh, original series. Now, uh, when the show was offered in syndication, those first 10 months, we call them the pre-Barnabas episodes, were mm -hmm. not in syndication. The show began with the episode in which Willie opens the coffin and uh, the hand comes out and, and, and grips mm -hmm. Willie's throat, and then we see Barnabas come to Collinwood. Um, the show is still in black and white at the time. Um, I, uh, if, if you want to really jump into the show after Dark Shadows becomes Dark Shadows, so to speak, in terms of mm -hmm. Jonathan Fred as Barnabas is already on the show, Laura Parker as Angelique is already on the show, the show has turned to color and it's completely a supernatural show now, you could start with the late 1967, early 1968 storyline uh, in which... Uh, Victoria Winters, the governess at Collinwood, is thrust backwards into time to the year 19, to the year 1795, where she meets the Collins family and meets Barnabas, and we see the story of how Barnabas becomes a vampire. And what I was saying earlier about how Dark Shadows was a repertory company, uh, the the actors got to play many different parts. Uh, many of them played between two and eight different characters during the run of the show because 
when the show went back in time to 1795 or 1897 or 1840, um, um, the same actors uh, played different parts. So um, that I'm sure that was enjoyable to the actors. It was an acting challenge for them to mm-hmm. play a different part. Joan Bennett was no longer playing Elizabeth Collins Goddard. She was playing Barnabas's mother, Naomi Collins. And, um, and, and uh, Catherine Lee Scott was no longer Maggie Evans uh, in present day. She was now uh, Josette Dupre, whom Barnabas loved. Um, but uh, his love for Josette and his rejection of Angelique caused Angelique to curse him uh, with vampirism. So, um, so yeah, the, the show definitely was a, a repertory company and that's part of the fun of dark shadows uh all of us have our favorite actors and and suddenly the show goes back to 1897 and oh there she is as this character or there he is playing a totally different character oh wow oh thank you so much that's now that is not now on my playlist and i'm really excited to get started on that so thank you Jeff, you mentioned the movie House of Dark Shadows, which I'm a huge fan. I think it's it's a classic. It's underrated. And I think it's really a film that shows Dan Curtis's skill as a director and a producer, because when he made the television show, it was basically done almost on the fly. They didn't do retakes. You had situations where boom mics are falling and walls fall down in the background. And this is part of the humor that came with a show that was done essentially in one take. But with House of Dark Shadows, this is a major feature film. He's able to take his time. He's got more money, better special effects. It's in full color. I think it's just a wonderful, it's one of my absolute favorite, probably one of my top 10 favorite horror films. Are you as high on it as I am? Yes. Uh, Like I said, it has a a different tone than the daytime soap opera, Uh, more violence, more horror, less of the gothic romance that many of the fans uh, wanted. But yes, it's a terrific movie. You know, it it stands right up there with the Hammer films that were being made in England. And um, uh, magazines like Cine Fantastique called it one of the best vampire movies of the 1970s and uh so yes it is it's a a very exciting enthralling movie and one that you can watch if you've never seen dark shadows you you quickly can pick up on uh these two characters are brother and sister and this little boy is the man's son and so on um so um yes um I forgot what I was going to say after that, but... um, In particular, I love the scenes. I think it's in the church toward the end. The atmosphere, the colors as as, uh, Maggie's character is uh, sort of on the slab there and and Barnabas is being pursued. I think it's just wonderful cinema. Oh yeah, very atmospheric. And I remember what I was going to say. this was Dan Curtis's essentially directorial debut. He had always been a a producer and an idea man and a great salesman. He started out selling syndicated TV shows to stations, but he had not really directed. Uh, Mm. uh, 
about 800 plus episodes of the 1,225 episodes of Dark Shadows were directed by Leela Swift, uh, who was one of the few female directors in the golden age of television. Uh, she was doing Armstrong Circle Theater and those other types of Playhouse 90-like shows in the 1950s and early 60s. And, uh, and, and uh, Dan Curtis readily admitted she taught him how to direct. Um, uh, he directed some episodes of Dark Shadows, some in the 1795 story and some in 1897 later in the show. But this uh, House of Dark Shadows was, of course, the first film he had done and, and a, a, a long uh, uh, work. Uh, and so obviously he was a very quick learner. She was mm. a great teacher. She taught him well, but then he must have had a knack for it because he developed a, a distinctive style coupled with great music by Robert Cobert, who was the composer on almost all of his four dozen productions. But uh, Curtis especially liked a low angle shot. Very often the camera is is low to the ground, pointed up, looking mm. up at the uh, the actors. Uh, you see the ceilings above them. He, uh, he felt that that was an, uh, a shot that draws us audience members in. It's as if we are sitting at the feet of the people right there mm. with them and looking up in awe at what they are doing. And um, uh, Larry Wilcox, who starred in his Western, um, uh, The Last Ride of the Dalton Gang, uh, called it the hero shot, looking up at something. Mm. Um, but, uh, so, so watch for that when you, uh, watch a Dan Curtis movie, especially Burnt Offerings and, and some of the others, uh, watch how that camera often is not looking straight on at the people. It's, it's, it's lower and looking up and that makes for a, um, a more interesting composition. So, uh, so yes, Leela Swift, uh, took Dan Curtis under her wing and, and, and launched his directing career, and then he went from there. He, uh, uh, he, he said that he was not really influenced by the Hammer films. Um, some fans say, oh, well, I see Hammer influences in the movie, which may or may not be true, but Curtis himself said he was not really influenced by Hammer as much as by Sam Peckinpah and the Wild Bunch. Hmm. And that perhaps hmm. explains why uh, House of Dark Shadows is much bloodier and gorier than what the TV show would be allowed to present on daytime television. He then does a follow-up film called Night of Dark Shadows, which was not as successful, partly because Jonathan Frid didn't want to come back. I guess he had felt that House of Dark Shadows was a bit too violent and he was a little bit displeased by that. But there was also a major problem because of the meddling of a TV producer, a guy named James Aubrey. Tell us about that. Oh, yes. Um, I, I mentioned that in my books uh, in, when I'm writing about Night of Dark Shadows. James Aubrey was, was uh, uh, notorious in, in the movie and TV uh, business. He, at different times, had helmed CBS and uh, MGM and... Uh, other uh, media companies. Uh, his nickname was the Smiling Cobra, and he uh, he had been known to uh, 
let's say tamper with or meddle with, or you can become even more descriptive, uh, films by Peckinpah and Blake Edwards and others, you know, and, and so it certainly was the case with Night of Dark Shadows. Um, uh, Dan Curtis, uh, with Night of Dark Shadows, uh, he, he co-wrote this movie with Sam Hall, one of the Dark Shadows writers, and they had crafted a, an atmospheric, uh, cerebral, uh, ghost story, kind of like The Innocence or The Haunting, in that we don't see as much as we sort of feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the movie uh, was eviscerated before it came out. Curtis uh, had had filmed a, a, a cut that lasted two and a half hours, which perhaps might have been a little too long for a horror movie at the time. But... Uh, those of us who have read the script and maybe even seen some of those missing scenes know that if it had been presented in that two and a half hour format, it perhaps would be a minor classic today that mm-hmm. everybody would know. But uh, when uh, Curtis showed the the uh, two and a half hour cut to James Aubrey, uh, Aubrey demanded that it uh, it be cut down. Uh, and and gave uh, Curtis and an MGM uh, film editor just 24 hours to cut it down to about 95 minutes or 97 minutes. And so uh, over the course of just 24 hours, Curtis and the film editor had to uh, look through the film and pick and choose what to cut out and to, to combine some scenes and leave out some important scenes like a, a, a seance scene and uh, scenes that really uh, explained the movie. Yeah. The movie still is uh, enjoyable to watch and it's scary and, and it's it has great atmosphere, but there's a lot more going on plot-wise than what we know if all we know is that 97-minute cut. So, uh, yes, uh, James Aubrey, um, you know, in, demanded that the movie be cut down. And so we really lost uh, some quality there. But the, all of the missing footage was discovered back in 1999 uh, in, in an MGM storage vault underground. And uh, there has long been talk of putting the movie back together, re-editing it and putting in all of those uh, scenes. Unfortunately, the sound was missing. Uh, mm. It was the picture, you know, the film, but but no audio. But uh, over time, David Selby, Kate Jackson, John Carlin, uh, Nancy Barrett, uh, James Storm, uh, the most of the cast went into a recording studio and um, re-recorded their dialogue, and so they can put it to the film. And wow. David Selby, in a conversation with me, said that was the hardest work I've ever done. He said, because a lot of what we said was not word for word what was on the script. And I, I didn't remember exactly what I said. So I had to look at my lips and my mouth and figure out, well, exactly what was I saying? And, and I had to match the uh, my voice to the picture. Um, so... Uh, 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 with the exception of Grayson Hall, who uh, died in 1985 and obviously was not around to re-record her lines, uh, all of the dialogue except hers is has been recorded and the scenes are there, uh, but um, it, that 
that dream project of all of us fans to see the the uh, a complete cut of Night of Dark Shadows still has not come to pass, but there is still some hope that it, it may at some point. Uh, that'd be a fitting tribute to Dan Curtis. Uh, we yeah. continue with our guest, Dr. Jeff Thompson. Uh, we have just a few more minutes remaining with Jeff. I want to get some capsule thoughts from you on some of Curtis's other fine productions. Uh, let's start with The Night Strangler, which was his made-for-TV follow-up to The Night Stalker. He was the producer on Night Stalker, but he directed The Night Strangler, and I know that's a film that you really like. Yes. Um, John Llewellyn Moxie of Horror Hotel and, and uh, other genre credits directed The Night Stalker uh, with input from Curtis, who was always a, a forceful producer. But uh, around, that, and around that time, uh, when Curtis also was uh, producing some uh, late-night mysteries uh, for ABC uh, and using other people as directors, he thought to himself, well, why don't I just cut out the middleman? Why do I need a director? I can produce and direct, so I'm going to start directing. Hmm. And so he did direct The Night Strangler, uh, the second Kolchak movie, uh, both of which were written by his friend Richard Matheson, based on characters by Jeff Rice, of course. But yes, Curtis uh, directed uh, The Night Strangler, um, uh, mostly on location in Seattle, and that began uh, his most prolific period in the 1970s. He, A Dan Curtis production was on the ABC Movie of the Week or on ABC Wide World Mystery or occasionally on CBS and NBC, uh, constantly, especially in the years 1973 and 74. Uh, he had many, many different uh, shows on, uh, made-for-TV movies and things like that. But yes, he with The Night Strangler, he continued to, to hone and perfect his directing skill. And if you think those scenes at the end of House of Dark Shadows were atmospheric, I'm sure you like those scenes at the end of The Night Strangler when Carl Kolchak finds the underground lair of the, the culprit of this movie, the, the yeah. person who is The Night Strangler and, and doing the, the, the horrific things in modern day Seattle. So, uh, so yeah, that, that was terrific. And of course, uh, uh, Trilogy of Terror, um, uh, which is unforgettable, especially uh, Karen Black's performances and the, the third and final story of the Zuni doll who comes to life and chases her around her apartment. And Burnt Offerings, where here again, you said a minute ago that with House of Dark Shadows, Curtis had more time and more money. With Burnt Offerings, which was a, a, a United Artists theatrical release, he had a, a, a long time to film uh, and a great cast of Karen Black, Oliver Reed, Betty Davis, Eileen Heckert, Burgess Meredith, Dub Taylor, all you know, terrific performers um, and a great adaptation of Robert Marasco's movie, I mean, uh, novel, Burnt Offerings, but with a, a, a different ending that Curtis and his co-writer, William F. Nolan, co-author of Logan's Run, worked out to make the ending more cinematic. Uh, the, the ending of the novel is, is more, more vague 
and and suggestive as instead of explicit. And yeah. so um, uh, the ending of Burnt Offering certainly is cinematic and, and horrifying. And When and I saw the- that, I was a child. I was watching it with my mother. It was a late Saturday night. I almost flipped out. I mean, that, oh, that yeah. ending, it, it almost changed me. It was something oh, yeah. I'd never seen anything. It's one of the great endings in horror film history. Mm-hmm. It is. Yes, um, we won't give it away, but um, uh, and then from there he went on and, and did, you know, uh, another trilogy called Dead of Night, and he did his own adaptations of uh, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Frankenstein, uh, The Picture of Dorian Gray, The Turn of the Screw, and Dracula with Jack Palance, one of the best Draculas and one of the best Dracula adaptations, once again, written by Richard Matheson. Let me ask uh, you about that. I I love the Dracula with Jack Palance. What do you like about it the most? Oh, I like um, the ferocity of Jack Palance. Uh, 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 He's he's a, a, a violent, horrific creature, and yet he has a kind of animal magnetism that that draws the viewers to him as well, not anything like the charisma of Jonathan Frid, but still some sort of draw that, and and uh, Curtis and Matheson uh, uh, used the dark shadows element of uh, this Dracula, Palance, uh, meets a woman who he believes is the reincarnation of his lost love, and so that slightly humanizes uh, the Dracula character. Originally, uh, it was going to be a three-hour movie for CBS, and Richard Matheson wrote a fantastic three-hour script, and it it has been published. You can read it, and I quote from it in my books. But at the last minute, CBS said, no, let's let's cut it to two hours. Mm -hmm. So uh, if that three-hour script had been produced, it would be one of it would be perhaps the best dark uh, i mean dracula adaptation as it is it is one of the four or five best dracula adaptations um uh leaving out certain aspects of the novel but uh, including a great deal of it and capturing the the atmosphere of the novel i believe although with some changes along the way and with a little bit of a dark shadows influence that was carried on by subsequent um, Dracula films, which incorporated the idea of he meets his reincarnated love. Mm. Just a couple of questions left, Mm. Jeff, before we let you go. There's been this perception for a long time that Dan Curtis was, and I hate saying because I think it's so untrue, but people have called him a television hack, that he did not create films that met the standards of the theater. I think it's an incredibly wrong assessment. I hate when people say that. Do you think perception is starting to change, even though he has passed away? Uh, I know that you're trying to change it, and I think you've done a good job. But why are, why are, tell us why people are so wrong when they say things like that about Dan Curtis. Well, um, I think his, um, uh, his accomplishments transcended his limitations of budget and time. And he himself, uh, I can't re- re- remember the exact quote, but it's in my books. He said, you know, 
making those ABC movies of the week in the early 70s was a great time because uh, uh, I just pitched an, a, a quirky, unusual story to the uh, network boss, and he told me to go make it. And he said, and mm. we, we, we made them uh, funny or dramatic or scary or mysterious or however we wanted to make them, and we made them fast and we made them cheap, but they turned out well. And almost always, I believe that is true about Dan Curtis's movies. Some, of course, are stronger than others, but even uh, some of his his lesser films uh, have his trademark, uh, his brand on them. You can tell that he has been involved and he has produced it or usually directed it himself, and uh, especially coupled with Robert Cobert's music. So, so all of his movies, you know, uh, after a while, if you get to know Dan Curtis and know his way of filmmaking and, he, and hear the music coming through the TV, you can instantly say, oh, okay, well, that's a Dan Curtis movie. The camera's mm-hmm. looking up and I hear Robert Cobert's music and it, it's fast paced and it has, you know, uh, uh, it's cut well. So that's a Dan Curtis movie. So I, I think that um, even though he was making uh, made-for-TV movies uh, on a budget and on a time crunch, he did the most with what he had and got a great deal out of his actors and out of his writers, and the production came out to be something thrilling. Final question for Dr. Jeff Thompson. Uh, you've written these great books. What What's your next project? Do you have something else you want to deliver to the public? I hope you do, because I, I think you've got a lot to offer. What's next for you? Well, I have uh, written some uh, articles, some short writings, and some conference presentations, and some book chapters um, in, in recent years. Uh, I'm still contemplating another book, but, uh, but I, I've contributed chapters to uh, uh, a, a wonderful book about uh, Dark Shadows fans' recollections of watching the show back then and, and our feelings about watching it when we were so much younger. And, um, and so What's I, the book called? Uh, uh, it's called Running Home to Shadows. Very good. Running Home to Shadows. Um, and um, and I, I, I wrote a, a similar thing for, for something else, and, and I've, I've written about uh, Dan Curtis's uh, Frankenstein adaptation a little bit further uh, to, uh, for a, a magazine called simply Monster Magazine. Um, and, um, and then I, I wrote a, a chapter for an, uh, an upcoming multi-author book about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in literature movies, TV, comic books, and, and I wrote about the, uh, here again, Jack Palance played Jekyll and Hyde for Dan Curtis, and I, I wrote about a couple of other adaptations, TV adaptations. That uh, book hasn't come out yet, but um, so yeah, I, I uh, do a little bit of everything, but mostly I've just been enjoying retirement in these <laughs> last uh, few years yeah. since I retired in December of 2020 from Tennessee State University after 35 years. Although this semester I am teaching one English class at another school, Nashville State Community College. So I am uh, continuing you know, to uh, uh, teach students, which I enjoy doing. 
but I also enjoy just being here at home at my house of dark shadows, uh, enjoying retirement with family, friends, dog, and comforts, and reading and writing. Oh, nice. Very nice. Uh, Jeff is the author of these books, The Television Horrors of Dan Curtis, Dark Shadows, The Night Stalker, and other productions. He's also written House of Dan Curtis and Knights of Dan Curtis. I can all highly recommend them. Uh, they are all terrific. I believe all still in print as well. And uh, if you're a fan of anything related to Dan Curtis and horror, uh, these books uh, really should be at the top of your list. Dan, thank you. Uh, uh, Jeff, rather, thank you very much for being with us uh, over this past hour plus. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I know Tracy has as well. Thank you. Well, thank you yes, very thank much. You so much. Thank you, Tracy and Bruce. And thank you to you who are listening to this podcast. So thanks so much. Again, our guest, Dr. Jeff Thompson uh, for Tracy Asteria. I'm Bruce Markison. Please join us next time in this uh, museum of the macabre that is called the Ghostly Gallery. <laughs>